Well, good morning again. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians as we continue our study in this important epistle. We're going to be concluding this segment of Colossians, this review and analysis of body life, if you will, um, a body life that is uh, driven by the performance of certain virtues that we have as the redeemed of Christ, as the elect. Paul makes that abundantly clear in verse 12. God has called you out of darkness into light for a reason, and that reason is attendant with His glory and with His bride, the church. And so, we want to make certain that we're understanding that in that context, we do certain things and we engage in certain patterns of behavior and we live out the reality of our election um, in the context of how we interact with each other in the church. And the church then conducts itself in a certain way. As we saw last week in verse 16, we know that um, even in our singing, um, that is a reflection of who we are in Jesus Christ and should communicate profound doctrinal truth that Paul has set forth for us here, um, even in this epistle and in the entirety of God's Word, as we know. And we'll read this morning. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do love you. Thank you for this glorious day you've given to us. We pray that you would be with us today through your Spirit. Help us to understand your words and in understanding them, to live them out in real time, in the way we interact with each other, and how we communicate with each other, and how we stand for the truth in a darkened age. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Um, thank you for cleansing us and washing us, for promising all of that to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for our salvation. We are overwhelmed by it. Indeed, we'll see today that it is a, a song of praise. It's on our lips. It's a reality for us that we live out in what we do and how we think and how we treat each other. Thank you, Lord, for the provisions that you have made, even in a day and age when there are questions about what will happen and how things will unfold. We know in great confidence that you are in control of all things and that nothing will befall us outside of your will and your way and your purpose and your plan for us. Help us to persevere. Help us to stay the course in, in light of these challenges. Help us to be people who are standing firm in the Word, confident in what you have promised us, living in faith and reacting to all these things, knowing that you do all things well. Thank you for loving us first, and thank you for uh, taking care of us and watching over us. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Beginning with verse 12 of Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes as follows, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, let's not forget that, let's not forget the context of this particular segment of this passage. Um, this is an important theme for Paul, and he wants to make certain that his argument is being based upon this foundational truth. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, so the principle of forbearance, and forgiving each other, the principle of forgiveness, which flows out of those virtues in verse 12. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So Christ 
our example. Verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It's, every, it's that cloak, if you will, that encompasses all of these virtues and brings them to work together harmoniously in the body of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule or control in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, there's that doctrine of election again, in one body and be thankful. The theme of thankfulness for Paul is very important. And it's tied to who we are in Jesus Christ and God's electing purpose. Verse 16, as we studied last, last week, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Again, an important verse. It gives uh, some insight into how we conduct ourselves in terms of corporate worship and the purpose of corporate worship. Corporate worship is to be God-directed, and it's to be uh, Christ-exalting and word-saturated. And in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And so this is the verse we're at today. It is an important verse, a, a somewhat familiar verse, I think. Many have memorized it, perhaps. It's something that you often see on plaques when you go into Christian bookstores or online when you look for those things. It's a familiar passage to us and is often referenced. And I think perhaps in some ways because of that it's become somewhat too familiar. Familiarity breeds contempt as we know. And so perhaps even this verse has become uh, familiar to us but not meaningful. And there is a lot here to unpackage in verse 17. Paul here in verse 17 is is really kind of tying all of this argument that he's presented and all these imperatives in verses 12 through 16 with a nice bow in verse 17. A good way to sum up an argument, a good way to bring, bring it home, as it were, in terms of your presentation, um, your summary pitch, if you will, as it relates to the arguments that have been set forth in the preceding verses. And so as we look at verse 17, let's consider what it is that Paul is calling us to here. We see here in verse 17, Paul begins with this phrase, whatever you do in word or deed. Well, that's a comprehensive statement. That is truly all-encompassing. And as we see when we look at the original language, um, this word whatever is actually derived from four separate Greek words. And Paul here is really casting his net as broadly as he possibly can with respect to grabbing everything about our lives within the ambit of Christ's control. Paul basically is saying that as the redeemed of Christ, everything that we do, both in the context of the things that we say and the actions that we engage in are related to and are to be connected to Jesus Christ. They encompass all of those things. The title of my message today is Life is Worship. And the Puritans used to say that all of life is worship. That was a reoccurring theme. It was interesting on some of the trips that we've taken to the East Coast. We've gone to some of the um, uh, the, the colonial settlements and things of that nature, um, and you can see like where the pilgrims were and others that there were oftentimes things inscribed on walls that spoke to this issue. We went to this one location in Williamsburg in Virginia, 
and it was a ship's rights uh, uh, office or, or shop, if you will, and there was something in there emblazoned on the wall, carved into a beam um, with respect to performing good work for the glory of God. They were encouraging their workers to be mindful of the fact that even as they made small pieces or large pieces for a ship, whatever they were doing, they made buckets, they made even wheels. It was a combination wheelwright, shipwright's uh, shop. Whatever that they were doing was connected to and reflected upon the glory of God. And so all of life is worship, and that's ultimately the theme that Paul is driving home here as he concludes this important imperative-driven section. This last section contains an exhortation. We are to do something, and we'll see that this word do, although it's not in the original language, is there by implication because of the command that's connected to this passage. So Paul here uses this word whatever. And the word whatever, as I noted, actually represents four separate Greek words, and it means everything, anything, whatsoever. So you can't get away from it. There's no way to maneuver around this. Everything, anything, whatsoever. So in the context of the things that controls in our lives and the things that we're connected to, Paul is telling us that whatever, whatever, Everything, anything, whatsoever is connected to our relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we'll see, that this language speaks to the idea about the way we think, the words that we use, the words that we say, and the actions in which we engage. The idea being communicated by Paul is consistent with the overarching theme of this chapter, which is putting on the new self. As we saw at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul uses that tailor-like language to communicate to us the idea that we are new creation in Christ Jesus, that we have been robed in something different than we were. We have been made new. The idea of regeneration encompasses with it new creation. That theme is found throughout Scripture. As new creation in Jesus Christ, then I do different things than what I did before. Indeed, Paul would begin this whole chapter with the idea of putting to death certain sins and then not engaging in certain patterns of behavior that are contrary to the idea of being in Christ. This harkens back to what Paul would say in verse um, 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Drawing the contrast in verse 6, where it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. We're no longer those people. And so our life reflects a different pattern, a different way of going, a different means and, uh, of conduct, if you will. Verse 7, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So again, this contrast is constantly taking place for Paul. It's important for him to tease that out. He's doing it again here in verse 17. And in verse 8, we see again this idea of the words. But now, so we looked at the the actions, we look at words in verse 8, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. 
And so Paul here reaches back into that theme, these type of imperatives, and captures it in this all-encompassing verse 17. So what is Paul doing here? Well, the effect is a clear attempt to make a statement so broadly inclusive as to gather up all possible scenarios. Well, maybe you found something that wasn't covered by verse 5 and verse 8, and you're thinking to yourself, well, good, I can do that. Uh, uh, you know, perhaps you have a child that does that with you. You give them a list of things to do. Heaven forbid that you forget to have something in the list because they will do the one thing not in the list. Amen? Uh, so make sure that you, when you give your edicts at home, your imperatives, and by the way, it's whatever. You know what I mean. It's everything. So if you begin to think there's something not in the list, Dad's telling you, it's in the list. <laughs> this is what Paul's doing for us. Many of you are shaking your head yes. Um, and, and perhaps many of you have raised teenage boys, so you know exactly <laughs> how they can maneuver those lists. They are crafty little devils, aren't they? They're the best lawyers in the world. <laughs> well, Your Honor, that was not in the list, you know. <laughs> I rest my case. Objection. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so here we have Paul making this clear attempt to make this very broad, inclusive statement. It gather, gathers everything up into it. It really speaks to the uh, overwhelming presence of Christ in our life. And what Paul is saying to us is that if Christ is everything to us, then our words and our actions ought to reflect that. We ought to control ourselves in the terms of the things that we do and say. Isn't one of the fruits of the Spirit self-control? Isn't that something that we're consistently exhorted to be engaged in? Paul, or rather Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 5, would list that out as part of one of the Christian virtues as it relates to how we live our lives, this issue of control is one that Paul is concerned about. If I have been redeemed, if I have been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is more precious than silver and gold, that it only makes sense then that I'm going to marshal my life in accordance with that. Now, our perfect example of this, of course, is Jesus Christ. He always lived in a way, every word he said, every act that he engaged in was to the Father's glory. We see this repeatedly in Scripture. And so we can rest in the confidence knowing that even when we fail, he didn't, and we have that perfect advocate and that perfect covering through his life and work. But the exhortation is there for us to be mindful of. And so we don't want to gloss this passage. We don't want to simply see it so many times that we don't um, give it the significance that Paul wants it to have. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying this to us. Clearly God intends that worship should touch all of life and all of life should become worship. Let me say that again. Clearly God intends that worship should touch all of life, and all of life should become worship. So, 
in the context of living that way, we recognize that we are not an authority unto ourselves. We just don't do whatever happens to come into our mind or engage in certain patterns of behavior or conduct just because we happen to be thinking about it. And this relates to a lot of things. Paul is ultimately saying that my life, my way of going, my way of being, my way of doing is controlled by something that is objectively true rather than based upon my subjective whims and desires. This relates to all sorts of things, both in the context of our service in the church to each other our ways that we interact with the world and how we ultimately then will relate to other people in our own homes as we will see as we move into these family relations that he speaks to in verses 18 and following. It's really all-encompassing. And for me today, what I want for you is an appreciation of that very fact. Dear friends, God saved you for himself. He saved him for his glory. And in your behavior, in your conduct, the words you use, the speech you engage in, the actions that you take are of reflection of him, ought to be in a positive way. So God clearly intends that worship should touch all of life. Isn't it interesting that my words are worship? Have you ever thought about that before? The words that you say throughout the course of the day are worship. You are worshiping Christ with your words. That's amazing. And and this is why Paul in other portions of Scripture will say things such as, don't allow coarse jesting, rude talk, filthy talk, dirty jokes, be a part of how you communicate. Don't allow your speech to be to be peppered with those kinds of things. We are to, to, to move away, to move back from that. doesn't mean that we can't laugh and tell a joke. You know me very well. I love a good laugh. I like to joke around. I'm a bit of a jokester. But at the same time, there's boundaries in the context of that. And so Paul is making certain that the reality of the truth contained in verse 12, look what verse 12 begins with, so... So what? So you're different. Why are you different? Because you're those who have been chosen of God. And guess what? Those who have been chosen of God talk a different way. They they marshal their speech. They communicate differently. This ties into the idea of what we say and do with each other even in the church. And again, Paul is writing this primarily in that context but it also speaks to the everyday lives that we live. Speaks to the idea of of whether we use swear words, um, whether we uh, engage in that type of of defaming God through, through using His name in vain in conversation as a pejorative, as a crude uh, moniker, if you will, with regard to a conversation. I would encourage you to not do that, that Christians ought not to be known for that, that we should not be engaged in the patterns of speech that we find in the world. It was interesting, you know, my dad one time related to me about the fact that there was a man that he knew that that swore like a sailor, just up and down, he could cuss a blue streak, as he would say, and and 
he related how God saved that man and that his speech changed after God saved him. His speech was different. And I think in today's world, I've been in meetings with people who identify themselves as Christian, and I don't even like to use that, that, that kind of designation, but that's what we are in today in some ways, but they say they are, but their speech doesn't sound like it. I've come away thinking to myself, my goodness, I could not tell based upon the way they were talking that they are the redeemed of Christ. They are not worshiping with their words. And parents, you need to teach your children this too, that even our words are worship. Now, Paul would extend this then to the idea of the actions that we take as well. This application is to be broad, of course. All of life should become worship. Paul uses this phrase. Look at what he says in verse 17. Whatever you do. Whatever you do, that's, that's everything. Um, and, and the mood, the Greek mood that's used here, and the, the, the Greek language is unique this way. We don't oftentimes, can, we can't quite capture this in the English language. But there's a, there's a mood in the Greek language called the subjunctive. And, and what that means when, it's, when the Greek language is in the subjunctive mood, that, that mood is used to further cast the exhortation into the realm of the possible and even hypothetical. So it reaches, it reaches into anything that you can imagine. Um, all scenarios. It's intended to be so utterly comprehensive that there's no way to get away from it. You can't, you can't shake it, you can't juke it, you can't jive it, you can't run from it. It's all there. It's all there. We really don't have that in the English language. We don't pick up on that, but in the Greek, it's there. And Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses it. And so when the phrase, you do, is seen here in verse 17, that is that subjunctive mood. It is the idea that it captures everything in the context of both that which is possible or hypothetical. Additionally, the language communicates to us that, well, it's in the present tense, as well, so that tells us that it points to whatever the present moment may at any given time find one engaged in. So, you're in a conversation with a friend at the golf course. Your words in that context are to be worship. You're in a meeting at work. Your words in that context are to be words of worship. You're standing in a courtroom, your words are to be words of worship. You're giving testimony in a case. Your words are to be words of worship. You're talking to your doctor. Your words are to be words of worship. Isn't that amazing? That, that's really, I mean, in some ways, it's almost inconceivable. But that's what we're, that's what we're speaking to here. And so Paul, using this grammar... 
using these certain tenses and moods drives home the comprehensive nature of the exhortation of this imperative. Again, this is an imperative. It doesn't get any more imperative than this. You do, right? The gospel says done. The law says do. We've done that before. But in this context, we're giving this do because of what he has done. And because we revel in that, we want to make certain that our life reflects that reality in our words. That's what it means. So, we have, a, we have a sense of the meaning of that then. So this first noun that we find here in the first part of verse 17, word, the word word, and it's used in its most general sense of its meaning. It's all words. It's just not certain types of words. It's every word. It's all words. It's anything that comes out of your mouth that is a word. That's what it means. There's no other way to mince it or cut it. It is a word, all words. The second noun, this word deed, is it stands in contrast to words because now it speaks to action. And it's all actions. It's all deeds. This is why Paul can say elsewhere, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of who? God. And we'll get to that passage in a little bit. So this is, the, these words, again, are intended to encompass the broad penumbra, if you will, of this particular passage. This, this is a passage that is certainly rich in meaning in terms of all that it contains. What Paul is ultimately saying, then, is that all of my words, all of my actions are to be brought under the microscope of worship. Glory to God. Exaltation of Christ. So anything whatsoever that, any, that one may either say or do, whatever word or work you may find yourself occupied with at any given moment, Paul here is casting his net as broad as he can to include all of that being covered by the exhortation. Interestingly enough, too, and, and this is a grammar-rich passage, Paul uses a lot of very... Um, intricate grammatical structuring, the phrase, whatever you do in word or deed, is classified in the Greek language as a nominative absolute. A nominative absolute. Which is, in terms of its meaning, this. It's an independent phrase which is thrust to the front of the sentence for emphasis. So the placement, the tense, and the mood all drive it home. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's how this verse is structured. And so you have all of that driving this back at you in terms of you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Well, here it is. Whatever you do in word or deed, it's put to the very front. He doesn't lay a certain foundation for it. He just says it. Boom, right there it is. It gets your attention. It grabs your attention. It's intended to do that. Grammatically and structurally, it's intended to arrest you. It's it's to cause you to take pause. It's almost shocking in a way, isn't it? You you look at that and you're, what? what? It kind of takes you aback. Whatever? Whatever I do, like change the oil in my car? Yeah. Mow the grass? Yeah. Clean the stalls? Yeah. Mow the ditch? Yeah. 
We don't have a ditch anymore. It got filled in. Praise God. <laughs> From whom all blessings flow. That's, do you notice that I filled the ditch in after Will moved out? But nonetheless, I did not like mowing the ditch. <laughs> so I filled the ditch in to God's glory. <laughs> it was a means of worship. <laughs> I was worshiping God the entire time I filled in the ditch. Whatever you do in word or deed, it arrests your attention. Paul intends that. And so, Paul, having gathered up all possible endeavors, one any one of us might at any given time engage in, he then says that we must do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Importantly, it ties back into Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's always about Christ, isn't it? This epistle is so Christ-saturated. You can't get away from Jesus Christ. And again, it's interesting that the motivation is not ourselves. Our motivation is Christ. You're doing this because of who you are in Jesus Christ. You're not doing it to become a more likable, affable person. To, to win friends and influence people. You're doing it because of who Jesus Christ is. Again, it's a reflection of the fact that you're overwhelmed by the magnitude and wonder of your own salvation that you can't help but not want to marshal your life in such a way that every word and every action you take is a reflection of his glory. That your attitude in approaching it, that your engagement in it, all of it is intended to reflect upon the work and person of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's doing here. And so it says as well in verse 17, moving past that opening phrase, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name. The word all is important, of course. We are to do all the whatsoevers in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's, that's significant. Again, Paul casting this very broad net to make certain that there are no loopholes. That no one can escape the application of it. Not that anybody would necessarily want to escape it, but our tendency is to want to escape such broadly cast nets. And so we are to do all the whatsoevers in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the historical person of Jesus who is referred to the Lord and so, overall, overall, our individual words and works in each and every moment of life are to reflect Christ, to reflect Jesus, to have a positive reflection. So, this means in terms of how we do business, how we treat our neighbors, how we engage in activities with people. They are to be reflective of and categorized within the context of worship of Christ. And so Paul then says that not all, re- so we look at verse 17, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So when I do something in the name of the Lord Jesus, I am then not only acknowledging him as my Lord and Savior, I am also stating that I am dependent upon him. 
relying upon His strength and power to do it. It is to do whatever we do or say whatever we say for the furtherance of His established purposes. So in the context of the things that I am doing, the things that God has given me, my vocation, my engagement with my neighbor, I am marshalling, engaging my words as worship, my actions, understanding that as a citizen in the kingdom of Christ, that I am advancing and furthering his purposes and his plans, not my own. It's interesting. The idea here is that ultimately that when someone leaves us in the context of what we are doing or what we are saying, that the one remembered is Christ and not necessarily us, which again is significant. That some will recognize in you that your speech and your conduct are different from what the world offers. Now, this is not going to happen every single time. Someone's not going to leave you and say, I was just with Jesus Christ. That's not likely to happen. But over time, in the context of your pattern of life, you will develop a reputation to be known as a man or woman of your word and a person whose actions are fair and just. And that will be a reflection on Jesus Christ who was the imperfect embodiment of that. That's significant. As we marshal our words in this way, it results in Christ being glorified. He is the one that is noticed and remembered. And so to be a, such a person each and everything we say and do must be in conformity with the character and revealed will of Jesus. Interesting. Now, this is not to be characterized or categorized as the popular what would Jesus do movement. We don't always know, nor was it predictable what Jesus would do, but we do know that he told the truth and that his actions were gracious and kind. This idea of what would Jesus do is a misapplication of this principle. We are not Jesus Christ, nor can we do everything that he did. But certainly his life in the context of the conduct in which he engaged with others by word and action is to be an example for us and is to reflect his character. And his will. What is the will? God's will for us in this context. We're to be thankful for one. We'll see that. We are to be truth tellers. We see that from Colossians 3.8. We can see the ideas that are communicated to us in Scripture. Verse 12, we're to demonstrate certain virtues in our lives. Those are things that are attendant with who Jesus Christ was. They simply are reflecting who he is. This also does not mean that you become the gospel. By the way, you are not the gospel. You can't be the gospel. And if someone's telling you that, that's wrong. Jesus Christ is the gospel. We talk about Jesus Christ. You don't be the gospel. You talk about the gospel, which means you talk about Jesus Christ. 
This idea that you see, the sloganism that we see, bumper sticker theology, I call it, is nonsense. And that's exactly where it belongs, on a bumper. It's of no good. We act and we speak in a manner in a, that reflects who Jesus Christ is, to some extent as if he himself were performing the act or speaking the word. Would, would Jesus Christ talk this way? Would he tell that joke? Would he engage in that action? I mean, this is, this is sobering stuff in that context. This is a reflection of Paul's earlier exhortations in Colossians 1.28 where he talks about us being in Christ and Christ being in us. Colossians 1 verse 27 and 28, he uses both of those phrases, being in Christ and Christ in us. Indeed, would not Paul capture this very thing in Galatians 2.20 when he would say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Is that not just a, a reflection of this very thing? An application of it, if you will? To see our lives fully in that context? Now, again, friends, don't, I don't want you to gloss this right now. Don't, okay, no, there are real practical implications as it relates to both our practical life and our body life. Both in terms of how we engage with each other and what we do within the body of Christ. That's important. Pastors should not have to beg people to serve in church. Churches should not have crisis of need with regard to positions that need to be filled, nor should they have vacancies that can never be filled. Actions, deeds, words are, are to be reflective of, of who Jesus Christ is. The body life is important. And again, the whole context of this, everything here in verse 12 through 17 is an application of how we interact with each other within the body of Christ. This is important for the church. This is the application. Pastor, how do I do this? What do I do? What actions do I engage in? How do I engage with others in the context of serving Jesus Christ? It speaks to the idea of being in the Word, knowing the Word, how to respond in the Word. Look at this. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10 with me. Consider this application. This is significant. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at this. Let's go back to verse 1. 2 Corinthians 10.1. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, 
I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walk according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. So Paul here is speaking to the idea, people have misunderstood this passage. He is saying that in the context of even using our words and communicating the things of Christ, that that means that we are taking ideas that are being foisted upon us captive to the word of God and that I am responding with the words of scripture to those ideas. I am taking all of those, those thoughts are, boom, they're coming at us. They're, uh, it's okay for Christians to be transgender. There are gay Christians. Uh, social justice is more important, or is the gospel. Uh, we have to do all these things. I'm taking all of those, and I'm grabbing them, and I'm taking them into the word of God, and I'm going to respond in kind with the word of God. Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, You do it in the name of Jesus Christ. So our words need to reflect that. It's no longer I who live. You're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to Christ. You've been bought and paid for. And so the idea is that we are people who are set apart and uniquely qualified, uniquely gifted, uniquely Um, uh, uh, characterized to be engaged in something that is counter to the culture, that is counter to even what we ourselves want at times. Now, look at this. Look what he does. He, He says in Colossians, turn back to Colossians with me, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Now what? That's enough, Paul. I'm dying here. Give me a break. Everything? You mean all of it? All the time? Every day? 24-7? 365 days? Yeah, all of it. All day long. Okay, that's enough. Oh, no. No, it's not. You've got to be thankful about it. (laughs) What? Wait a minute. Paul, please, let me murmur. Let me groan. Uh, Give me that, please. Just a little bit of that. Let me murmur and let me groan a little bit about this. No. Giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wow. And all of this is to be done, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is, a, 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 again, grammatically important. It emphasizes the mindset of thankfulness hearkening back to some of Paul's earlier exhortations. Thankfulness is a major theme of this letter. We saw it in verse 3 of chapter 1, and verse 12 of chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 15, and 16, and now 17, and we're going to see it in chapter 4. And here, it's in the present tense, which emphasizes an ongoing, regular action. So no murmuring, no groaning about the idea that Paul is communicating here. 
So again, Paul, in the grammatical structure of this, and, I, and I, I'm not going to apologize for the emphasis on this because by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's this way, but Paul, again, grammatically structures this particular passage to emphasize the thankfulness related to what it is that we are doing and that we're doing it as a means and mode of worship. Paul is saying to us that in the unfolding of our daily lives, thanksgiving should ever and always be permeating the atmosphere of all our words and works. All of our words and works, permeating it. Well, that changes your attitude about a lot of things, doesn't it? Again, the comprehensive nature of the exhortation is significant. It's all things, whatever you do, whatsoever, your job. Perhaps there's too much murmuring and grumbling in our lives. I think all of us could ask God to forgive us for that. And so Paul here is saying to us, be thankful because of who you are in Christ. Let others see that. Let it be reflected in your life. And we do this because of who we're thankful to, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What we're seeing here is that Paul is saying it's a glad thing, it's a good thing, it's a, something we should be grateful to live under Jesus' lordship. And this is what true lordship is. It's not making him Lord, as some would say, and as some emphasize as somehow being part of our salvation. It's not. Salvation is by faith alone. It's not an additional work of making him Lord. But this is true lordship. True lordship encompasses the idea that he is Lord of all of my life, every single day, every single second, until I take my last breath. And when I go to heaven, he's still going to be Lord. All the time. Every day. For all of eternity. You will live in that context. So, we see here, it's a good thing. It's a glad thing to live under that lordship. That's what Paul's saying. Our thanksgiving to God the Father is to be offered through Jesus Christ. That's what this phrase through him means, which then encompasses the idea that we're viewing Christ in his role as our mediator at God's right hand, which again is a wonderful and perfect thought for us. So, there you have it. There you have verse 17, and it's meaning, it's impact, it's significance for us, and there's so much here that we can deal with. There's so much room for improvement on all of our parts, bearing in mind who we are, what God has done, what God has said, the encouragement that we receive from His Word and from each other as we engage in this pattern of living. Now, we'll begin to move into this other portion. Uh, I trust you'll all be back next Sunday as we begin to look at verse 18, Lord willing. And I trust in verse 17, there's not any discouragement there. The ex it's an exhortation, 
there's always room for improvement, but we get to remember too that Jesus Christ always did these things perfectly for us. Even when we fail, we can go to him. But our lives ought to reflect who he is in terms of our speech and our conduct and how we take advantage of things in terms of knowing that they're brought to us providentially and how we respond and how we react in our jobs or whatever it might be with an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this important exhortation. Help us to comprehend it. Help us to make application of it. It's not easy. It's all-encompassing. It seems in some ways daunting, but you know, we know that you give us the strength and the power to do these things and to live in a manner that is pleasing to you, not for our own um, salvation or to obtain additional righteousness, but because of our love and wonder over what you have done for us. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ and ask that you would give us hearts of thankfulness and forgive us for not being grateful when we ought to have been. In Christ's name we pray, amen.